0: hello and welcome to the next episode of unmet need i am your host jeff smith and today we have a special treat that david shaw our guest from episode 10 has agreed to spend some more time with us to specifically talk about small company patent litigation this is an important topic that we need to understand better so david thanks for making time again and i'll turn it over to
1: you Oh, thanks, Jeff. Like, like a bad penny. <laughs> keep, keep showing up. <laughs> um, but ha- happy to be back. I apparently had so much fun last time that I, that I got thinking about other stuff that, that might be helpful in some ways to, to your audience. So, so we came up with this idea together about chatting a little bit about small company litigation and specifically um, small med tech company litigation. That's certainly what I focused on. And there may be, there may be insights that are specific to MedTech that may not translate into IT, but we'll see where we go. So I had, a, I had a few thoughts that I wanted to share. I should start out with that that typical attorney disclaimer that this isn't legal advice. Um, but having said that, there—there there I, I, I hope I can provide some insights that that will give uh, some folks pause and something to think about and maybe change some of the things that they're doing if they are in these small companies and have uh, litigation in their future, unfortunately. But uh, it, it, is, it seems to be part of the journey when, when a little company is built, succeeds, and really has settled on something that, that, that materially improves patient lives and patient outcomes that invariably value comes with that and as a result competition comes with it. And so um, if, you're, if you're set on building a company that, that really is going to succeed and build value and you know, change people's lives, then I think it's somewhat naive to believe that you can be litigation free, certainly with your competitors in the patent space and, and the, the amount of litigation in, in MedTech obviously is, is quite, quite well understood uh, as being... Uh, frequent, unfortunately. So, so with that said, um, should I just sort of jump in and have a start sharing a, a few thoughts? Because the way I thought about it, I think they fall into a, a, a few categories. One is communications. One is people. One is documents, and then one is substance. And and uh, the substance I'm focused on, you know, actual considerations that, that companies should take into account when thinking about the various different levers to pull when defending litigation and some of the tools in the patent offices and some of the tools abroad and how those pieces go together. So should I just jump yeah. in Jeff? Or?
0: Yeah, I how like I that have... framework for the discussion. Communications, people, documents and substance. And These are all themes that you have seen emerge or that are that are consistently present in in med tech company litigation?
1: Yeah, big, big buckets of stuff okay, um, that sort of fit into those buckets, but, but there, there are certain issues that fall within those buckets that crop up time and time and time again that cause issues, and so that's, that's why I wanted to, to touch them. The other thing that I should share um, just at the outset is that when I'm talking about med tech little company litigation, I'm talking about bet the company litigation. Okay, when you're a little company, typically with one product or one line of products, and you get into a fight with, you, with a competitor of your patents, if you own the patents and you are trying to stop the competitor from copying what you are doing, it is better company in the perspective that if you fail, you've essentially sent the signal to the marketplace and acquirers that you are unable to protect the only technology you have. So it's better the company in the sense that if you fail to enforce the patents and fail to stop the one of the, or f- fail to effectively use that, that meaningful protection to actually protect your company, then your value will be significantly reduced. And you, I've, I've seen this in my career. Um, we'd, we'd win a patent fight, put out a press release, and we'd gain a billion dollars in a day. Because the market understands wow. the value of being able to protect your product. If you do not own the patents, you are now in a patent fight and patent litigation with a company that owns the patents, and you are the defendant. It is bet the company in the sense that you lose that fight. It doesn't matter how brilliant your company is, how good your technology is. If you fight the fight all the way and lose, um, then again, you are materially impacted if not shut down. And so it is, it is in that context that, that this conversation sort of rests. So I thought it was, I thought it was worth saying that. Then there's one, there's one other final initial caveat, and it's this. And I think I may have mentioned this when we, when we chatted last time, but it's, it's that litigation certainly is not, not to be celebrated. It's a tool for sure. But my goodness, if you can win the market without fighting, what a, what a great way to succeed. Um, the ways of doing that is a different podcast. <laughs> and I'm not going to be on number 12. This one is focused on... You know not not how to avoid litigation it is what do you do when litigation is foreseeable how do you prepare for it what do you need to keep in mind and then how do you actually fight it and and hopefully um prevail in a way that your company survives and potentially builds real value um so with that in mind why don't we why don't we jump into the to the first one and the first one i had was um was communications and the first one I want to put under that is the attorney-client privilege, the scintillating edge of your seat topic of attorney-client privilege. Um, <laughs> we're not going to get into, you know, a lecture on what the attorney-client privilege is, other than it is a tool that that companies can use effectively to prevent communications about patents, IP competitors from being discoverable in litigation. And there's a You know, what you need to understand about it is um, it is commonly misunderstood and commonly not used appropriately. So the first thing, what's the benefit of it? The benefit of it is if you have a series of communications that you want to make sure are appropriately protected from discovery, then make sure you talk with your attorney about how to use the attorney-client privilege to help you do that. And when it's done correctly when there's litigation, there's discovery, and you have to turn over a bunch of information to the other side, probably everybody knows that. But you don't have to turn over material that is appropriately protected by the attorney-client privilege, among other things. I'm just talking about the privilege right now. And so, so what's the problem with that? First, people don't really understand what it is. Second, they don't really use it correctly. When I have had a number of CEOs, no criticism, but, but when they find out about, about the privilege, all of a sudden, they, they think everything is privileged. They just put privilege on everything. With the, the assumption that everything is going to be protected from discovery, and this is great, and I can hide everything, and that just is not how it works. <laughs> if, if, if a company takes that approach, then it isn't effective. But there is an insidious side to the privilege, and that's really what I want to focus on today. Here's the insidious side of it. So if the privilege is, is, is appropriately used to protect communications between the client the CEO, the board, and its attorneys, or members of the, the, the team and the attorneys, then those communications will not see the light of day in litigation unless the company decides that it is in its best interests to waive the privilege. If the privilege is waived, then all of the communications that otherwise would be protected by the privilege are then subject to discovery. And there are various limitations about that that we don't need to go into right now. But the point is that a communication that is protected by the privilege, when viewed several years down the road in the heat of litigation, the company might say, wow, I, I need to defend myself now by talking about what the lawyers said by talking about the defenses we thought about, by talking about the conversations we had that otherwise wouldn't be subject to discovery. Okay, right. so that's a, that's a tool the company has. Well, okay, what's the downside of that? The downside of that is that once the privilege applies, many companies just say whatever the heck they want to say. They don't think about the potential of waiver. They don't think about, hey, all these communications that I'm flying back and forth in email, at some point, it may help me to waive the privilege and and defend my company better by revealing all of this. They don't think about that. And so as a result, they almost take the privilege as license to say things in their right mind they might not otherwise say if they knew it was subject to discovery. So they get very comfortable with the fact that, oh, this is not going to see the light of day. So how does that play out? It plays out in the following way. It means that as a result of the way in which the privilege was used to protect communications that otherwise are appropriately protected, the company as a practical matter cannot waive privilege even if it wanted to. Because if it were to waive the privilege, then all of these communications come out that could be devastating to the picture that the company is trying to otherwise paint about how it thinks about its competitors, how it thinks about its products, how it thinks about patents. And so the, the dangerous side of the privilege is that companies can paint themselves into a corner by almost getting too lackadaisical about how they are communicating in a privileged context.
0: The that makes that's sense. A,
1: that's, yeah, that's the real insight that I want to share that I've seen so many companies not understand until it's sort of too late when you're in litigation and then you go and look at how the privilege was being used to protect whatever communications were going on. And then, then the lawyers come in and say, oh, no, we, we can't weigh privilege. That just isn't possible because here are all the bad things that are going to happen when all of these communications come out and the other side's highly paid lawyers get a hold of them and start to paint us as something that we don't believe we are, but yet our communications may support.
0: Right. Could, could I take a shot at that, David, from the for entrepreneur sure, yeah. perspective? Yeah, yeah. yeah, go for it. So this will be purely a hypothetical scenario. So imagine a company is developing a novel technology. They file their first patent, and maybe they do some degree of patentability you know, research and they see what other patents are out there. They gain some comfort that yeah, this, this place that we're developing in this, the segment, it seems like we could get some claims. So they file some patents They begin prosecution. And as that process plays out, the entrepreneur says they see another patent that they hadn't seen and maybe just issued and it looks problematic the the founder says oh my gosh this is like this is exactly what we do and they beat us to the punch and a mistake that i've heard about is they send a panicky email to maybe one of their partners or investors or even their attorney and they say david this is terrible this is exactly what do that we do we have a problem (laughs) and and they attach the issued patent
1: yeah yeah, so you, you've, you've touched on two different issues. The first one is that email is sent to the attorney um, that normally would be privileged, but if there is a waiver of privilege where that email would be responsive and relevant to the fight that is underway, well, that's the kind of email you don't want to come out, especially if you are trying to waive privilege to defend against something called willfulness. Willfulness in patent law essentially is you, you not only infringe it, but you willfully infringe it. You sort of knew what you were doing. You intended to do it. You, would, you didn't do the things that normally prudent companies do, and you're found willful, which means that your damages could be trebled. If you have to pay $100 million, now you've got to pay $300 million. You might have to pay the other side's attorney fees. It may get into the mix for injunction. You know, willfulness is, a, is an interesting area that that there's always a discussion about whether a way of privilege to, to defend against it. And your email would not be helpful in that context. But the other issue you, you touched on is one that I was going to touch on later, but let me talk about it now. That email doesn't go to the attorney. It goes to the executive staff. Or it comes from the executive staff, the CEO. Or the CEO sends it to the board. None of that's privileged.
0: <laughs>
1: and that, that touches on a couple of things. Um... Use of email, which I absolutely love when the other company uses it to document all of its worst fears because it's dynamite in in discovery. But I hate it when my clients are not disciplined in how they use email. Email is this incredibly useful tool that all of us, I certainly have, all of us have fallen into this, this trap of writing down what we otherwise would have said to somebody in person or on the phone when there is no record kept of it. And all of a sudden, we just sit at our desks and we wrap out an email and they respond and I respond and they respond and I respond. All of a sudden, you've got this record of exactly what we're thinking and it sticks around forever. And it is a very dangerous habit to get into when litigation... Is either foreseeable, or you're actually in the middle of it. Imagine having all the all the thoughts documented about a competitor. I guarantee you, many of those thoughts shouldn't see the light of day. But when they're documented real time about what the CEO and the board and the and the executives in the field were saying and thinking and doing, it it literally is a is a you know follow the tracks in the snow to how to nail this company. It is a very mm-hmm. dangerous tool when you think about the insidious side of how that information can then be used against the company and your your comments relate to that so um one of the things that i that i wanted to talk about in in the communication area um if i if i could jeff is going back to the notion that if you're in the process of building a business and you're building a business that you're trying, you have the potential to create real value and change the practice of medicine and help a lot of people and in the process make a lot of people a lot of money, you would be naive not to be sophisticated in areas that I think of as litigation preparation. If I'm involved in a company and it isn't in litigation and we're building that kind of a business, we start preparing for potential litigation years in advance, years in advance we start to get um, sophisticated about communicating about our rights, our IP, our patents, and about third-party patents. We do it in a way that is protected to the greatest extent possible. No one, no very bright engineer or founder is going out and doing all of their independent IP research and analysis without the involvement of somebody that can protect all of that from discovery, namely an attorney. No one is talking about our IP or third-party IP in email or uh, in person to any third party. Um, And it, and it, it sort of builds on that notion that we need to get sophisticated about not saying and doing things now that later on could be misconstrued and used against us to place us in a false light. So that that you know, getting sophisticated early and preparing yourselves in advance for a fight that may well come down the road will do yourself wonders. Another so if, thing, you were
0: to, if you Oh sorry, go sorry. ahead David.
1: No no, no please Jeff yes, go ahead.
0: Why well, as it relates to getting sophisticated, is there so if you, if you imagine there's a seed company and you know, a company has raised a seed round or a series A, they have five or six employees and they, you're brought in as an advisor to help them implement some best practices around these, these types of communications. What are some specific things that you would recommend they do and do not do?
1: So one of the, one of them I'm just alluded to, it's, it's uh Understanding the space that they work and operate in, the competitive space that they work and operate in, and the and the nature of third party patents that are out there, you know in the hands either of of what are euphemistically called trolls, who are a very, very sad term, but it 's a term that has stuck over the years. A troll sort of uh, defines a non practicing entity that has patent rights you know it's uh, it's some very smart person who has no company, has no product, but but had the, the wisdom and wherewithal, the patent, something that it turns out is quite valuable. And so they, they tend to hold uh, people up or try to hold industries up for a lot of money, N- NPs, non-practicing entities, entities. Or your competitors, you know, companies out there with a portfolio of patents that, that are in the space that you have. Um, without actually performing... A sophisticated FTO um, early in your scenario you you've just got a company and they're just they just they're a little bit wide-eyed and bushy-tailed but they're years and years and years away from any product on the marketplace you know you don't want to perform an early FTO because you're just gonna waste your time you're gonna to have to do that again and again and again as the product is iterated so formal FTO doesn't make sense but but nonetheless knowing the space is important And so many companies have very, very bright people, engineers, oftentimes, who get out into the patent space and they just start looking and searching and learning and commenting and forming opinions and sharing views. And the more that goes from simply here's a patent that I found to wow, did you read the claims? That's gonna block us from where we're going. This is a huge problem. We need to rethink this and it turns out that pattern is ultimately asserted against the company, right? there's a spectrum of, of, of potential damage just through letting that person do what they're doing. So, But you want that person to do what they're doing. So you should get an attorney to ask that person to do what, they're, what they then do, and they're doing it for the attorney. You essentially make them an extension of the legal department. And then you can leverage all of the, the, the engineer's work but none of it is subject to discovery, at least nominally, OK? And then in that process, you will also help the entire team to understand um, despite the fact that you may have some very, very important insights into these patents, I don't want emails discussing them. If we're going to talk about these patents, um, you're going to send them to me and say, "Here's what I found." let's have a discussion and then we'll have a discussion and it won't be on email and it won't be recorded and it won't be, and we'll just chat about what you found. And then we don't have an email down the road, you know, with the eight exclamation points. I've been in depositions as you might, one of my clients, an engineer wrote an exclamation, uh, wrote a statement. I can't remember what it was, but it had eight exclamation points and the questioning, attorney roasted (laughs) that engineer for 20 minutes on why eight? Why wasn't it only one exclamation point? Why did you feel the need to put multiple exclamation points? Why did you mm, decide that you put eight exclamation points? Have you, have you commonly put eight exclamation points on your email? But <laughs> so you must have really, really, really thought this was super, super, super important. Isn't that correct? That's why 20 minutes of this! And it was simply gosh. because he didn't understand how his communications that were meant in the best way to get the attention of everybody, in fact would be used against him and his company at the most inopportune time, right when they were launching their product. And he wrote it six years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's absolutely one of the things that I would help them do, <laughs> is not do that type of thing. Um, but, that, but there's a quick segue that I'd love to take into document retention. So probably everybody listening understands that in litigation, there's document discovery and document discovery is exceedingly expensive. If you have a company that has very few documents, then that litigation will be a fraction of what you otherwise would spend for a company that has hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions of documents. Now, there's nothing we can do with documents in the medical field that we are required to create and required to retain, but that does not typically apply, I'm gonna suggest, to 95% of all emails that are sent back and forth uh, between people in the company and outside the company. And it just doesn't, that's not how formal records are kept. And so, one of the things that I would encourage clients to do is be very thoughtful about how do they keep what they need to keep to support their business and how do they not retain. Information they don't need to retain to support their business. And it gets into document retention policies, um, document destruction policies, email retention policies, all of those things. And what what I would say here, without getting too deep into this, is it's a topic that absolutely should be discussed um, your counsel should guide you through it carefully to make sure that if one is to be adopted, that it is adopted appropriately, that it is adopted when the company is not under a duty to retain all communications, and that duty can kick in before an actual litigation is filed. There are there are detailed rules on, on, uh, on when a company has to start retaining information. And then once it's adopted, let's say you adopt some sort of document retention policy that that um, discards things after a certain period of time. You can't forget that it's there. You know, five, six, seven years later, it's just been operating in the background, and all of a sudden the duty of a company changes. You can't just forget it's there. You've got to make sure that it's front and center, and the folks who need to know, mainly the attorneys, do in fact know so they can help the company understand when it would be appropriate to, to address that issue. So that's that's closely related to this all this email stuff as well. If the client, could I ask one I, question
0: on that, David? Yeah, for sure. You can ask whatever you want. So imagine, so imagine a startup. They they decide to get their website and now they have their email address. You know, David at newco I think looking at the market share for new companies, the Google G Suite product has become very competitive with the traditional Microsoft three hundred and sixty Outlook. So a lot of companies they have G suite. And so they're using the Gmail corporate email system, which the default is to archive and save everything. Like, it's not like you push the delete button, you archive it. And so one year, two years, three years into the, the journey, it's saved every single uh, every email that has went back and forth. And then if they're using the G suite drive, which is you know the cloud storage for their computers all their files are on g suite and then all the collaborative you know word processing powerpoint excel and there's really not an incentive to ever delete anything because the storage capacity is so high and so cheap so if you just focus on email specifically i'm i'm really curious about the the concept because of document retention policies but more specifically document destruction and email destruction. What are some best practices that you could share?
1: Um, yeah. So, so don't keep everything. <laughs> <That's the best laughs> that is the best practice. The neon lights flashing from, you know, top of the empire state building. Um, yeah. Because storage is so available and because we don't see it, and because it 's offside in some farm somewhere in the middle of Nevada, we don 't care. we just leave it there. But I guarantee you, when the company gets a bill for seven and eight hundred thousand dollars in two months and they go, "What the hell are we spending that money on?" And they go, "Well, you ended up saving eight years' worth of emails, and we have to produce we have to go through all of those to find out what 's relevant." search them, produce them, you know, uh, bait number them, catalog them, review them, understand, take the privileged stuff. When you have that volume of information that, that is potentially relevant has to be searched and then a lot of it has to be produced to the other side, it is incredibly expensive. And so the companies that, that understandably aren't conscious of the volume of information that they are saving – are setting themselves up for a massively expensive and potentially dangerous headache down the road in litigation when not only do they have the expense of producing it all, but it turns out that innocuous statements that never, nobody ever thought would be retained, never see the light of day, all of a sudden are exhibit numbers 2, 3, and 4 at trial in front of the jury, and people are going, what? Yeah. why did I say that, first of all? And why in God's name did we keep it? Right. So that's what's so
0: interesting to me is there's the the email is just the trail of these conversations of every fear and thought, free (laughs) form, excessive use of exclamation points. So just the, the ability for something to be discovered at all is I think that one of the first points I never considered. And then even if you have a great policy and you're following this type of advice where, if you see a patent or something that is of issue or concern, you have, you know, you just send it. David, thought this would be interesting. Let's discuss. Even if you follow all the right rules, just the sheer volume of documents and emails that you have saved could lead to very costly discovery. Oh, for sure. Um, if if when for sure. there is litigation. That's interesting. Yep.
1: yep. And so most, look, a lot, of, a lot of folks listening to this will understand that. If, if they've gone through litigation, they absolutely will understand it. But nonetheless, a lot of folks are not so sophisticated in understanding what, what tools they can use to manage it. So at a minimum, I would say, go to your legal counsel and start talking to them about how do we control the volume of information we are retaining, especially when a lot of it is simply irrelevant to the information we need to run our business and comply with our obligations to retain. That's, that's, that's where I would leave yeah. that, Jeff.
0: Um, have you ever the, encountered what, the Google Vault
1: product? In I, I have not. A, Remember, I, I live in a cave, so I am very <laughs> tech unsavvy, <laughs> but ho- hopefully one of, you, one of your other guests may know about that. Hey, there is, there is one other very quick point that I want to make on communication Then I need to turn because I'm already burning a bunch of time. It's on diligence. So he- here's the context. Little medical company uh, has done some searching of third-party patents, needs to raise money, The finances come in, the VCs, the private equities, the corporate partners come in, and they want to do diligence on the company. And one of the things they want to do is diligence in IP. Okay? Well, there's no way that communication can be privileged because the privilege is between client and attorney. My client is the company that is being diligenced. I have no relationship with the entity that is performing diligence on my company, and so so the only thing I wanna say about this is ask the questions when you go into diligence about how you prevent, to the greatest extent possible, the disclosure of information that in litigation could come back to haunt you, and there are, there are definitely ways of doing that um, in terms of, of engaging with partners to do the full diligence they need without creating this paper trail that will then come out later in litigation if you happen to get into the litigation with the company that owned the patents that you were defending in diligence. Folks, I have seen, and it blows my mind when this happens, in diligence, because they're so focused on raising the money, they create these memos, these 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50-page memos about all of this third-party IP. You know, let's, let's say it's, it's from one or two companies that they then share with pride and give to all of the people who are trying to decide whether to put money in to the company. And oftentimes, neither the company nor the VC that is doing the diligence understands the damage that approach can do to their investment four or five years down the road when, the, when those patents are litigated against the company that they are trying to invest in. It is, it is beyond foolish in my view to take that approach but I have seen it on, on a few occasions where it just made no sense to me. So uh, how does it work if say, uh,
0: if the company has a NDA with the potential investor is that discoverable still?
1: Oh sure, as is the NDA. See that uh, what's discoverable you know Jeff this is this is uh, this is a common misunderstanding. People say well well but that but that was confidential. That, that, that's not supposed to be produced in the litigation. And, and the answer is, first of all, you're absolutely right. It was confidential, and it remains confidential, which is why it is going to be produced in the litigation only to the other company's attorneys. The other company can't see your confidential communications, but the other company's attorneys will see all of them. And it's the attorney's that you want to prevent from getting the information in discovery because they're the guys who are paid $1,500 an hour to destroy the company you were trying to build. So the fact that it's confidential, that you've got an NDA, that it was setting, doesn't matter in litigation. It all comes out. So your only shield to discovery, there are various techniques for saying, oh, this is the, the requests are too broad and it's... You know, it's not relevant, but your only true shields in discovery are the privilege and and really relevance, and even relevance is is a bit bit off, is a a bit weak of a defense. But you can imagine if you were having, you know, a a tiff with the DOJ, for example, um, that wouldn't be relevant to patent litigation. Maybe. (laughs) I guess it depends on the facts. Um, But, yeah, confidential communications all come out in litigation. And, and if a company is engaged, that.
0: go ahead, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, please, Jeff.
0: No, I just think what's so actionable about this is, you know, you're, you start off, you're pitching all these investors, you get to two or three, maybe there's even a term sheet, and now they're in this diligence phase where you just want, you know, to close the round. The, the opportunity to really have a, give a positive signal to your you know, potential investor with such a savvy question, Mr. Investor, Mrs. Investor, how can we discuss IP and how can I, as the founder, support your IP diligence in a way that it's going to protect you as a potential shareholder to the greatest extent possible, should there be litigation? And I think if I was an investor, one, they probably don't hear that as often and it shows a degree of sophistication that would be a very good signal, I think.
1: Yeah, no, Jeff, I, I absolutely agree with it. And, and I'll go one step further. Um, I think the question is appropriate, but but the way I do it is I, I don't ask the question. I indicate how we're going to do it to protect both parties and and basically lay the groundwork nice. for how we're going to exchange information and have the discussion while protecting both the company's interest and the investor's interest if they end up investing. Um, but yeah, you're right.
0: Much better. So, <laughs> much so better.
1: let me, uh, can, I, can I shift topics now to people? Please. So... Here's the, here's the big one that I, that I think I wanted to touch on here. And it comes down to um, hiring the right counsel. Hiring the right litigate, litigation counsel and, and counsel for your company to get you through what might well be um, the biggest risk to your future success that, that you have ever experienced. I've I've been involved with a number of companies where, you know, in moments of candor, um, the, the executive team sort of look at each other and go, how is this even possible? You know, we're doing so great, things are so great, we're helping so many people, and all of a sudden, the future of our company is completely out of our hands and beyond our control, and we turn it over to a team that we don't know. And it happens all the time. And so... My biggest observation in terms of of problems that companies have in this area, set set aside for a moment who the right council is. I'll I'll comment on that in a second. Not, Not by names, but by process. But here's the biggest problem that I've seen, and I see it over and over and over and over again, and it frankly is why my business exists. It's when a little company that is unsophisticated in litigation. Maybe the CEO the executive team has never been through MedTech litigation. Maybe the board hasn't. More likely, the board has at least one director who's had a really bad experience in litigation and is totally gun-shy and bemoans the fact that litigation may be foreseeable or they may already be involved in it. So you have this unsophisticated consumer of a MedTech company and its board and they go out and they hire litigation counsel. And then they sit back and they say, oh, thank God the cavalry's here. We can relax. We're saved. We just hired Joe Schmo. And Joe Schmo is the best patent litigator in the world. And Joe Schmo is going to save our company. And they go. They stop doing what made them so successful in the first place. They become passive consumers of whatever Joe Schmo and his team say, they don't speak the litigation language. They don't understand that levers can be pulled. They don't understand the questions they should be asking. They don't understand how to challenge what Joe Schmo declares because they believe everything he says is right. They blindly defer to that litigation team And they don't have anybody to act as essentially a go-between between between the world of the litigation team and all that's involved and all the issues and all of the language that the attorneys are using on the one hand and the business team that is unsophisticated. And that is my model. That's what in-house counsel does. That's what quasi-in-house counsel does and there are, it is such an important role to play and I'll tell you exactly why it is it is mind blowing to me the number of times that these highly highly paid thousand plus dollar an hour attorneys roll in and defend a medical company and they miss the biggest defenses they don't know that they exist because they're so expensive They're paid to block and tackle. They're not paid to dig. And the guys that are paid to dig aren't the expensive attorneys. They're the first and second year associates. You don't don't hire Joe Schmo, who's 40 years into his career, to look through documents. That ends up all the way down at the most unsophisticated attorneys on the team who were who are wet behind the ears just out of law school and they're looking through the documents to try to see if there's anything that's helpful, they don't even know what to look for. The number of times I, 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 can, I can almost not count them on one hand, the number of times I've gone into a company and started to dig and poke and investigate and find defenses, defenses, and documents that the litigation team didn't find. It's incredible what we pay them. But it's in large part because of the way in which litigation firms are structured. The brightest people and the best minds are so expensive that they don't do the foundational work on which the case depends oftentimes. They, they sort of eat what's put it on their plate from the guys lower down the totem pole. And as a result, they miss stuff. And the biggest mistake that I think medtech companies make, if you, if you follow my line of reasoning, is this. They assume that these litigators are not human. And they are. And they make mistakes. And the problem is that when that litigation team makes mistakes, and they miss things, and they don't defend the company with all the available defenses that are available, guess what happens? That litigation team gets paid, and they move on to their next client. Mm. But unfortunately for their client, that company fails as a result of the mistakes they make. And the company may never know that the mistakes were made because they don't know how to in a sophisticated manner, consume what the litigation team is providing to them. And so that's why being critical consumers of what the litigation team is doing is imperative to making sure that company is defended in the best way possible. And then, you have, then you've got two different varieties of in-house counsel. You've got an in-house counsel who says, well, I've hired the best guys and I'm going to sort of manage the process, and, but I'm going I'm I'm to let them do their job. And what that's called is hope. You sort of hope <laughs> the team you hired is going to do what they're supposed to do because if they don't do what they're supposed to do, they're still going to get paid, but your company fails. And then you've got the class of in-house counsel, and I am blown away about how rare this really is where they they literally get dirty. They roll up their sleeves. They go into the trenches. They look at the documents. They understand the nitty-gritty defenses and create tension in the team by asking the questions and sometimes the very tough questions. And then you get two types of litigators. You get litigators who go, well, who is this guy asking me questions? I'm like Joe Schmo. I don't get questioned. Mm And then you get the other litigators who go, wow, yeah, this is going to make us better. Welcome the team. And so if you come full circle now, hiring the right litigator for your company, to me, means three things. Let me see if I can remember them all. The first is that they are at the top of their game. When you've got to bet the company litigation, you better have a very good team. But the very good team doesn't necessarily mean the, The world's most superb trial lawyer. Cases are won and lost oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes before you ever get to trial. And if you have a trial attorney who will come in and try to save the day at the very end of the case, but otherwise is too busy with his 10 other cases, then you've hired the wrong team unless his supporting cast is absolutely fantastic. So when I hire a team, I don't look for necessarily the world's best litigator. What I look for is the team that is most well-versed and most capable in all levels of the team who will represent the company. The second thing is there had better be a rapport between the company's CEO and the lead litigator because that CEO is about to turn over his baby to someone he may not know, and if he does not have a rapport and a relationship with that lead attorney, when things get stressful, it is going to be a nightmare. That, to me, is really, really important. It comes down to the human dynamic again. You need to be able to work well with the team that you hire. If there's not a mutual trust, if there's not a mutual respect, it's not going to be a fun journey. It, It may succeed, but it's not going to be a fun journey, and it may well fail because trust starts to be eroded when it most matters to try to, to try to maintain it. The third thing I look for is a team that is not of the mindset that sort of says, hey, guys, we're good. We don't want any input. We just want to come in and do our thing. And, and if that's the approach that they take, sort of like the, the not invented here approach, um, mm-hmm. I've seen enough bad representations from teams like that that I think it's a mistake to go down that road. And it's that kind of a team that says, heck, if you've got ideas, input, come on in, challenge, think with us, add to the, to the product, and it, it, it makes for an exceedingly powerful end product when you're able to work with the litigators who have to do their job, and you are able to make them better through the dynamic tension I'm talking about by not always taking what they say as a given. Um, that's, that's how I think about it. And it's, it, it's, such an, it's such an important part of the whole process, and you see it time and time again. Um, when When companies that are sort of you know, deer in the headlights. Oh my God, we have go, We got to go hire somebody to save the day, and then they just stop doing what they've done so well to build the company to this point by continuing to challenge, and be creative, and be um, uh, uh, what's the word proactive in terms of getting ahead of the problem. They just turn the keys to the to the castle over to the litigators and say, "Save us," and it's it's a it's it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, by the way, yeah, I mean, how,
0: it, how often, David, go ahead. how often when, when there's litigation, so let's say the company has gotten, they've made some progress, you know, where someone cares enough to, to litigate, and maybe they've used a law firm for their financing documents, employee matters, just g- good general counsel how often when litigation arises does that firm and board of directors choose to use the same corporate counsel and, and maybe their litigating, litigation team or versus how often do you see you know, venture-backed companies go out and get a specific specialized litigation counsel?
1: Uh, so it's a question I can't answer, Jeff, because it's, it's, a, it's a, an, an empirical question. I, I just don't know the numbers. But what I can tell you is this, when a big litigation is involved – it is obviously a huge potential profit center for any law firm. And so if you're a law firm and you see this, this issue sort of brewing, you absolutely will throw your hat in the ring because you want the business. What I do know is a lot of decisions on council are made through almost inertia. Well, hire the guy you know. you know. They're around the corner. Oh, we're comfortable with them. Oh, they've been involved with us for a few years. They know us. So now they're the right team for this project as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. They may be, they may be, but don't just knee-jerk in into hiring a counsel, put yourself in a position where now you're riding the wrong horse, and then you realize it two months in, two years into the litigation and have to switch. Um, the other thing that, that I think uh, folks may overlook sometimes and underestimate is the extent to which the court in which the litigation is pending may influence choice of counsel. Um, there are some courts in the country where, <clears throat> you know, I would, I would always want somebody who is known to the judge, seen him before, maybe maybe is in the same circles, uh, you know, is respected, is won before, the judge likes him. I don't think that's always important. I really don't. But in some courts and some judges, I do. And sometimes I think that, that factor is, is, is overlooked as well. Um, but there's another point in this. And, and this, this to me is equally as important as hiring the right counsel. Shame on any med tech company that gets surprised by being sued. And I, I, I'm not saying, well, you know, geez, I thought they were going to sue us, but I didn't think they were going to sue us now. I'm not talking about the timing, surprise on the timing. I'm talking about the surprise of being sued. Hmm. We have enough tools at our disposal today, search tools, online tools. You can figure out pretty efficiently and quickly what patents are out there that might cause you a problem. And once you do that, litigations oftentimes are set up for success many years in advance, if you're sitting and you're developing a business and you are developing into a landscape that is owned in large part by a company that is already established and you have a better mousetrap, boy, you, you bet your bottom dollar that other company is going to come after you at some point. And so knowing what their patents are, what the issues are, what the potential defenses are. In fact, the way I put it, Jeff, is if I'm involved in a company sufficiently in advance of the time that any litigation ultimately occurs, I want to know that competitive portfolio better, equally as well, but I want to know it better than the company that owns the rights. I want to know what its strengths are. I want to know what its weaknesses are. I want to know how I'm going to challenge it. I want to know how I'm going to put the pieces together and set the chessboard so that by the time they say, oh, we need to sue that company, that my client, by the time that other company figures out that it's time to do it, I already know what they're going to do, how they're going to come after us, and what we're going to defend with. And it's part of being ready for this when you're building a company that is worth something. It is such a shame, and I've seen it time and again, well, little companies, they, they, sort, they sort of knew that it was sort of coming, you know, and they had somebody sort of looking at it, and, and they, they pushed around some papers on it, but they didn't get sophisticated about it until the lawsuit has been served. And they go, okay, well, all right, what, what are we going to do? And so look at each other and go, well, we've got we to hire somebody. Good God, you should already know exactly what you're going to do if you are serious about protecting the value that you have created, and that's, you know, that's the other part of, of what I end up doing, and I end up enjoying. When you, get, when you come into a company that's somewhat raw, and the chess, piece, the chess board has no pieces on it, and you get to put your pieces on the board, and the other side's pieces on the board, and the other side doesn't even know it's playing chess yet, it's fantastic, <laughs> yeah. because then you anticipate all the moves they're going to make, and they play right into your hand. And I've seen that before, and it works wonders, but it involves an investment of effort and time and money before the litigation ever occurs, and you know what, maybe it never does. And so companies say, well, maybe I don't need to do that. Well, believe me, they have second thoughts when it, when it happens.
0: So, and is the, is the first step of that process, David, doing a thorough freedom to operate, the FTO that you mentioned?
1: So, so it is, but so FTO is thrown around and used in in a lot of different ways. So FTO means freedom to operate. I guess everybody probably knows that. Freedom to operate is is typically a formal analysis of of okay, my product is you know almost final. I got all the bells and whistles on it. Now I need to do a bunch of searches uh, to figure out whether various features are covered and whether the combination is covered and so on and so forth. And it's it's, it's usually a, a, a formal exercise that is done shortly before a launch, maybe a little bit earlier, depending on the timeframe associated with the development and when the pieces are fixed, um, to make sure that there are no glaring issues. FDOs can be quite complicated. They can be quite simple. If you do an FDO search and you don't find anything in your field, you're the first mover into a field, well, then all, I'm, all that I'm talking about doesn't really matter, um, Because by definition, no one's got any patents that are relevant to what you're doing. However, it is very often the case that the first entity that moves into a space with its its first technology has a lot of patents but has a product that isn't very good. And so other companies go, huh, well, I can build a better product and I can solve all the clinical issues they're having. And so they, they are the second mover into the market, but they don't have all the early patents. And that is a, you know, <laughs> the, the rest is history. The number of lawsuits that have occurred over that kind of a situation where the second mover has the better product and the first mover has the patents but has a crap product, um, you, could, you could fill an encyclopedia with them. Um, <laughs> so the way in which the, what I'm talking about is you may not have done a formal FTO, but you've already done landscape searches and you've already figured out the company or companies that have the relevant patents in your space. And you've already sort of been through them to get an idea of, oh, no, I, you know 80% of them I don't even care about. But there's 20% of them I do. 10% of them I just want to watch, want to see how they prosecute them, want to see where they go. 10% of them, you know, I need to read them again because that's a little too close for comfort. And then I've got a couple of them I really need to start having a conversation with a company about uh, potential design around. Or, hey, why do we need to put that in? In which case, we knock out this portfolio. Or if we're going to put it in, we should do a validity search and make sure that we've got an answer for those patents. And if you've been through several rounds of diligence for fundraisings, you must know the patents that you always talk about. And it's those patents that I'm talking about, you might as well assume you are going to be sued on them. What do you do day one, two, three, four? What are your defenses? What else do you want to find out? What evidence internally to your company do you want to create to help defend against those patents that you keep talking about? Don't just assume it isn't going to happen. Don't just assume you're going to be bought before those patents are ever asserted. Don't assume the future is bright and rosy when you sort of already know if you were honest with yourself that yeah, you know, we got a we got a problem with those and we, we just we just sort of hope we don't have to face them. It's not a strategy. It's not a strategy. There's a there's a New Zealand saying, sweet as. Do you do you know, do you know what that means? Sweet no. as. It's it's basically a saying that just sort of says life's good. Life's good. Sweet as. <laughs> and there was a, there was a massive uh, earthquake in New Zealand, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I was actually down there, I was, I was heading out in a boat down to uh, several archipelagos between, between New Zealand and, and uh, Antarctica for about a month. So I was down there, and this earthquake had just hit, <clears throat> and I was reading one of the newspapers, and it was talking about how many people were not insured. And how many people that lost their homes in this massive earthquake and lost all their belongings and you know all of the trauma that is associated with them. And the, the saying that stuck out to me was, sweet as is not a strategy. Sweet as is not a way of protecting what you have. And it is exactly the same in MedTech. Simply hoping that everything will work out great is not a way of protecting the value you're building when you have a bus that you see coming down the road, but you think it's much further away from you than it is, and unfortunately, you're sitting on an armchair in the middle of the road, and you're gonna get run over.
0: Yeah. You've
1: got to get more sophisticated in this area, and I think more med companies might well save a lot of money in litigation if they did that just a little earlier. So anyway, I've sort of flayed that horse. any <laughs> <Yeah>. else <and if, laughs> to
0: talk about on that one? No, I mean, I think, you know, we, we set out to discuss communications, I think that was extremely helpful. The significance when it comes to just the people in for a CEO and management team to really have to trust and feel like they have a connection with their general counsel. And certainly if it comes to litigation, it's one of these bet the bet the company situations that if specialized litigation counsel is brought on, it can't be someone that the management team doesn't have trust and feel like there's a fit and everyone else has to be proactive because so much of that preparation work needs to be done by, you know, not, you know, $1,500 an hour Joe Schmo. So I think that yeah. is great. The, the documents uh, as it related to communications and just having a policy at all I have to tell you, I'm intrigued to talk about substance.
1: (laughs) What is, uh, what is that one? So, so here's, here's what I wanted to to talk about, um, on the, on the substance piece. So the first is financing for litigation. So what does that mean? Well, yeah, you got to pay the lawyers. Well, no, it it doesn't mean that. Well, it means that it includes it, but it's, it's way more than that. Um, When a company either foresees litigation, thinks it's coming, or is actually involved in it, it's not just the bills that the the large dollar-an-hour attorneys are going to be sending for their work that the company has to be financed for. Um, And I mean finance, meaning either it's got the money in the bank or it knows exactly where the money is and the money is available on terms that the company can tolerate. you know, it's amazing how much more expensive capital gets when the company is in litigation and the investors see an opportunity to take more of the company for that capital. Mm -hmm. So you've got to figure out how to finance for the long term. You can't allow the other side to beat you by spending you into the ground to the point where you can't pay the bills anymore. You've got to be able to finance to cover that stuff. But I am also talking about the bond so this doesn't really apply when you own the patents. Right? When you own the patents, to a certain extent, you have the ability to control the timing of the lawsuit, the place of the lawsuit. Unless, of course, you have very loose lips and you give the other side, the side that doesn't own the patents, the, the accused infringer, you give the accused infringer the opportunity to sue you first in what's called a declaratory judgment. But I, I'm not talking about the DJ right now. When you're a patentee, the bond sort of really doesn't apply. But when you are an accused infringer, a defendant in a patent litigation, it is highly foreseeable that if you lose at trial and a damage award is is awarded, that either that damage award will be based on a trial that was absolutely perfect and there were no issues and you won't have to appeal or you don't want to appeal, I think that's probably about 0% of cases. Or you will say, well, okay, we've, we've, been, we've been assessed the damage award, but we've got a litany of things that went wrong, that we should have a new trial. All of this is, you know, jury was, was crazy, and we need to appeal. Now, how does that company appeal if it can't cover the bond? The answer is it can, but what will happen is Let's say let's say the bond, for discussion purposes, is 30 million bucks. Yeah, 50 million bucks. Pick a number. I don't care. The number is large enough that the little company doesn't have that money lying around. This isn't a situation that that even hits the radar. I am sure of a Medtronic or an Alcon or an Algan or a or a you know one of the big spine companies. J&J. They just they don't need to. They can easily post a bond. They go to bond and they say, oh, yeah, you're a, you're a big company. You can pay. Not an issue. But you try doing that as a little company. Little company. I need a $30 million bond. Well, what do you got as collateral? Well, I, I, got, uh, you know, I got some account receivables. I got $5 million in the bank. Uh, I got a good product. I'm like, I'm sorry. I can't give you a bond for that because they're not assured of being paid. So, the problem for the little company is not simply paying your attorneys. The problem is being able to cover the bond while you appeal. And the day that you realize that litigation is maybe foreseeable, you should start thinking about that. And so many companies don't. How do I cover a damage award of 30, 40, 50 million? How would I do it? And you better start getting very creative because it's not so easy to do as a little company. And so many companies don't think about that. So that's the first piece. What I'm talking about. David is the
0: bond requirement. Is that, is that something that the courts, you you must, as you begin this litigation, the courts mandate that you have a bond or who dictates that? Yeah.
1: So, so there, we could get into a complicated conversation, but here's, here are the points that I think folks should, should understand. Bonds, are usually always required to be posted before an appeal as a practical matter. Yes, technically, you could appeal without posting a bond. Guess what happens if you do that? As soon as you appeal without posting a bond, the patentee who's got the judgment against you will take your assets, your bank accounts, your IP, your receivables. They will shut you down because they have a right to enforce on the judgment unless you get the court to try to stay it somehow okay so hmm. so the issue associated with funding for a bond is simply making sure that you are you're preventing the patentee from doing what it may try to do if you don't post the bond to preserve your right to appeal now I don't know if that answers your question maybe I got off track a little bit but um, did that no, answer that, question does. that
0: that's that's correct. Okay. Yes. Thank you.
1: So, financing—you've got to think about more than oh, I've got to cover you know three million in fees over the next year. Yeah, I can do that. Um. Second, uh, there are now tools for challenging patents. They, they, folks may have heard of the term IPR, Interpartis review, or PGR, post grant review. <clears throat> they are. They are. Almost like mini litigations in the patent office, they are relatively quick, they are relatively inexpensive compared to a full-on court litigation, and in my view, they are overused. When you tell a business company, well, you know, we've got a, we've been sued on these patents, we may have a jury trial in two and a half years, it's going to cost you $10 million to defend, there may be this multi-multi-million dollar defense uh, verdict against you, and then we'd appeal and, or, or we could go to the patent office and file an IPR. Oh, my God, let's file an IPR. That sounds great. And to me, it, it really is a little bit of a siren song in the following sense. And my, my point here is not to say don't file IPRs. IPRs have been a wonderful tool that a lot of people have used with great success. But there are some really um, there are some real serious drawbacks to them if you, if you don't. If you're not a sophisticated consumer of what an IPR is, what it does, what it can't do, and how things may end up for you. So I, I just wanted to hit four of them super, super quick. First, uh, PGR, post-grant review, is some, it, this, this first point doesn't apply to PGRs, but PGRs are much more limited. And I don't want to get into an IPR versus a PGR. Ask your counsel what they are. But you as a business team need to be asking the following questions. So first, um, what can I challenge in an IPR? The answer is, you can challenge with prior art. 102 anticipation, 103 obviousness. Prior art, that's it. Can't challenge on any of the defects in the patent. Inventorship, written description, enablement. You can't challenge on inequitable conduct, fraud in the patent office. You can't challenge if your best defense is, we don't infringe this patent. But if you construe this patent so broadly to to cover what we have, well, then your patent must be invalid for these reasons. You can't present that defense either. Infringement has nothing to do with the IPR. The way in which patents are judged in an IPR is almost in a sterile environment. You take the claim, you take the piece of prior art. You argue about whether the piece of prior art invalidates the claim. And that's it. There is no context, no story. And oftentimes, the best defense for the company is to tell the story. What's going on? Why don't we infringe how can, you, how can you say we infringe while still having a valid claim? The, the interplay between those two doesn't match. And oh, by the way, these guys you know, lied to the patent office and on and on and on, and they didn't have enough written description and all of this. You can't do any of that in an IPR. And so you've got to very quickly decide, unless you are playing the, the game in a more sophisticated way by seeing the bus when it's way down the road and have the conversation early on about whether or not you want to IPR it before the litigation sort of comes to your doorstep, you've got to decide, where do I tell my best story? Sometimes, if the prior art is so dang good, IPRs could make a great path. But sometimes, no. And and just so you know, I personally, in representing three dozen companies, have yet to file a single IPR because of the other risks that I'm about to talk about. So the next one is estoppel. Now what does that mean? Here's what estoppel means. When you, if you want to challenge 30 claims of a patent in an IPR, it is highly likely that the first few claims that you challenge, you've got the best prior art out there. It reads directly on it. The prior, what they did was they patented an invention that, occurred, that existed 20 years ago, those claims are clearly invalid. But then they have these, some of these other claims and as you go further down the claims, claim 20 and 25 and 30, they start to add features that, you know, they're, they're not in that reference. They're, they're, not, they're not what's called anticipated. Now I've got to find some other references, and now I've got to put together an obviousness argument. And it would have been obvious. Yeah, no, nobody did what they, this patent says to do, but you know, it would have been obvious to do it. And then it turns out that, that there's another feature that they added, and all of a sudden you need three references. I've actually seen somebody file an IPR with four references attacking a single claim. I think that is insane. And here's why. If the IPR is declared, if it's instituted, if the Patent Office says, you know what, we need to take a look at this patent. Thank you very much, little medical company, for drawing this to our attention. We're going to take this patent and take a real close look at it. If the Patent Office disagrees with you on any claim that you challenge, you have no further prior defenses to that claim in future litigation. You cannot make the same arguments you lost on in the patent office. You cannot make arguments on other prior art that you could have drawn to the attention of the patent office but chose not to. Once you pull that IPR trigger, you had better win because if you don't and you then get sued on a claim that you lost on in the IPR, oftentimes companies have no defense other than non-infringement. And if you infringe that claim and your only hope was validity, you might as well pull your checkbook out. So, folks need to understand the full scope of the risk associated with this principle of estoppel. And they should be asking their counsel very tough questions about how's this going to play out? What claims do we challenge? What's the risk of not challenging some claims? What's the risk of not bringing the prior art in? What's the risk if the patent office disagrees with us? How are we going to defend those claims in litigation? Do we? Infre- There's a whole litany of questions that they should be asking, and oftentimes they go, "Oh, IPR is cheaper. Yeah, let's do that."
0: It's interesting. One but of that, the one of the common things is as as an expert patent litigator, you know, if you have if you have a a, a very clear case, as you kind of. I'm using the wrong word, but if you're going to win because it is so clearly that you are right, there's still a risk that you could lose because of savvy litigators on the other side. But one of the things I just thought of is when it comes to communication, the attorney client privilege, while beneficial in suppressing information and discovery, the overuse of it limits your optionality where it could actually benefit you. And similar with the the use of the IPR if the company chooses the IPR just because it seems less expensive and potentially easier. If they go that path and they lose, they can't use all the other potential ways to win this litigation uh, because they're at that point limited to what you are saying, validity, infringement. Uh, is that, is that true? Is it, is it the optionality that you were looking for when you come in to help companies with these litigations? Is that, an important requirement for you or something that you need? Uh, uh,
1: When you say something that I need, well, let me me see if I can answer it this way. I I agree with the overall premise, which is um, that IPRs can be way overused and that companies oftentimes don't appreciate the consequences of going all in on that strategy and coming out the other side when it doesn't completely kill the entire patent. And I'm I'm not saying it's not worth um, rolling the dice. If, if the company, for whatever reason, decides that that's what it chooses to do, my only point is, I would hope that company goes in with its eyes open and doesn't lose the IPR on at least some claims and then turns to its counsel and goes, oh, gee, guys, so, so what do we do now? And they go, well, there's very little we can do at this point. It might cause right. a different decision-making process. And my other point is that in no way, shape or form should any company ever decide on the IPR path simply because it's cheaper. That, that is foolish in my mind when you start thinking about the longer term consequences of an IPR that doesn't go quite so well. Um, when, I, when I hear about you know, some companies going, oh, well, we, we just got sued on 10 patents, and we've, we've IPR'd them all. Yeah, okay, uh, if you think you're gonna knock out 10 patents and every claim, uh, good luck. Because if <laughs> right. you don't, if you don't, you've just killed your company. Gosh. And it's, it, well, it you know, it.
0: bringing it back to where we started, I think that this specific topic, which I'm so appreciative that you took the time to kind of focus us in after such an expansive conversation on the last episode, it really is about small med tech company litigation where it is bet the company and these big buckets that you've described with communications, people, documents and now we've covered substance i one it's incredibly informative for me and i'm going to have a lot of follow up questions and <laughs> it's uh it's just so complicated and you have so much experience with you know several dozen companies if you had to summarize maybe one thing for the listener the entrepreneur that you know listens to this podcast is maybe feeling a little fearful and unprepared. What's one thing next week that the entrepreneur could do very actionable to at least start her down the right path on preparing for potential litigation?
1: Uh, So it's, it's, it's a good question, Jeff. And I, I think it totally depends on, on where their company is on the, on the spectrum of, of IP sophistication. So you can imagine a company that hasn't even done landscape searching, so they, they're sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed but don't really know what they're playing with, to the company that, um, that isn't involved in actual litigation but realizes that there are one or two competitors that sort of own the space through, through, through the patents. What I would say is um, maybe the highest level that would apply to all of them, if you're building a company that truly you believe can create value for the patients that your customers wish to serve, um, your employees, your shareholders, your board, you know, both, both value through clinical benefit and, and value through financial benefit. If that, if that is something that really is um, within reach or possible, get more sophisticated on the IP risks that you may face and do it earlier than later. I, I think that's sort of the, the broadest advice I, I would do because a lot of companies, you know, they, they wake up when they're slapped with a lawsuit and, and then they've just lost time. And most companies have time on their side when they start it early. And that's, there's, there's a, a company that I represented several years ago that because I was involved with them three years before, Uh, the lawsuit and we actually ended up triggering it because that became part of our strategy that we wanted to bring the fight on our terms when we wanted it even though we didn't own the patents and we found a way to do that and that's a whole other podcast Um, but the the point is that we were able to take the approach that we did because we got sophisticated very early about the other company that was in the space Um, two final quick points if we have time, if we don't I will shut up
0: no, please. I'm, all the time you have, yeah. It's great.
1: Um, so one, one other substantive point is uh, OUS challenges. So we're a, we're, we're a U.S.-based. We're, right, we're talking in the U.S. We represent U.S. companies. U.S. companies typically value U.S. patents much more than OUS patents, usually because the U.S. is the largest medical device market in the world. makes a ton of sense. However, if I own a bunch of patents, And I want to cause your company, Jeff, grief. I might choose to attack you overseas first Mm. and interrupt your supply chain and sue you in Germany where if I sue you for infringement, you can't defend on invalidity. You have to file a separate lawsuit. You have to do a whole bunch of things in Germany that I just don't care about because all I want to do is get a quick injunction and shut you down. And all of a sudden, I take out 10, 15, maybe 20% of your revenues. OUS is a really important part of understanding the bigger picture when it comes to defending a little medtech company. So you've got to be cognizant of what's overseas. But you also have massive opportunity overseas as well. Because there are so many ways to fight overseas and start to erode the strength of the patent protection that this company has through using tools overseas that simply aren't available to us in the U.S. Patent Office. And so being very, very thoughtful about what rights exist overseas, what risk do we face as a result of those rights owned by that other company, what levers do we get to pull potentially to play that game, and how can we do it without the other company even knowing it's us that's fighting the fight? And there are ways of doing uh, that. That are very effective, actually. That, that I've used with with some success. Um, so I so I would also encourage um, companies that that you know think they're heading into some sort of multi-fronted war to start to really be thoughtful about how do we start to pick away at what they have at a time when they may not be able to attack us in the U.S. But nonetheless, we can start to eliminate their rights, and that's uh, that's quite powerful. And then. Um, the final point that I wanted to share is you know, it's a it's it's a fluffy point. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think about it. But here's here's what I would say to well here's what I have said to all my CEOs, but I'd certainly say to any CEO I worked with you have to find a way to get off the litigation roller coaster litigation is going to have the highest highs. You file a motion you really care about. You win. It's great. It's fantastic. And you're just as high as can be. Oh, I put a press release out. And then, you know what, two weeks later, you lose the motion, and it's the lowest of lows. And what do you mean we had to and it just is soul-destroying when you don't live in this world. And my best advice to the business team is get off that roller coaster. Understand you're going to have highs, and you're going to have lows. Understand that you might think you can win it all, and you likely won't. Understand you will think you will lose it all, and you likely won't. And so rather than riding the roller coaster and and looking for the extreme results, if you're winning, find a way to get out at the right time where you preserve your win without risking that win. If you're losing, have faith that there will be an opportunity to turn the tide. It is a rare, rare case where that doesn't happen. And so set yourself up to take advantage of that opportunity. I've seen companies litigate and they thought they were going to win everything and they lost it all. They snatched the proverbial... Defeat out of the jaws of victory, and it was because they got so arrogant, so strongly believing that they just couldn't put a foot wrong, that they lost what they were trying to achieve. And I've seen little companies come out the other side because they had stamina and the belief and the wherewithal to weather the storm and just keep fighting. And so, if there's a way to take that, you know, very, very tough. Uh, experience, set of experiences over multiple years and it's a very expensive one and almost just focus on what matters and hire the best people that you trust to do the job that needs doing, then I think you will sleep better at night in the end. By the way, that's where my, my business name comes from, Turnstone Consulting. Somebody told me once, David, man, you don't leave any stone unturned. That's why I I called Tensum. Thanks
0: for sharing that. I I always wondered that. Well, so in, in wrapping up, we won't go to the vault because you were gracious enough to do that in the last episode. And I do want to preface this by saying David is incredibly busy and has not, we haven't even discussed what I'm about to ask, but you were kind enough to include your contact information in the show notes of the last episode. If I'm an entrepreneur, and my head's spinning right now. And I got this, I must say, I am. And that last bit on the international piece, it does have my head spinning. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the only like rational conclusion I could reach is I need to get a hold of David Shaw. How should I reach you? And do you have capacity to take on clients? And how does that process work?
1: Um, I, 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 do, I do and I don't. So I think it totally depends on the life cycle of the clients that I'm representing. Um, there's, a, there's a case that I'm involved in right now that's going to trial in a few months. and So, for example, if, if they had a trial coming up in March, well, then the answer would be no. I just can't. But um, the good news is that over the years, my clients usually exit. They will sell they will ipo um, and they will find an exit for um their shareholders etc etc so when that happens i do not stay on to work for the acquirer or the much larger company i will go back and take on a new smaller client so i have i have quite frequent turnover for a very good reason um, because we have seen it through to the point where the company has succeeded once the company succeeded and navigated the shoals of that, that IP present. They don't need me anymore, and and I can I can go on and work for other companies who, who do need me. So, um, so there's always that that potential to to work for, for new clients, and I would welcome it. Um, how to get a hold of me? Um, my email is a mouthful. I don't know if you posted it, Jeff. D at Monterey Advisors. It's just an old email I've used. Monterey Advisors doesn't even exist anymore, but it's an email that I've used because everybody knows me by that montereyadvisors.com or sellers 408-390-8329 those are probably the two ways um,
0: excellent well yeah please any, any final thoughts
1: yeah one final thought so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask myself a question from the, from the vault David I'm going <laughs> to try to channel you Jeff David yes. uh, if you had a <laughs> book to recommend for medtech CEOs before they go into litigation what would you recommend Sun Sues The Art of War No question. Read it. The lessons in Sun Tzu's The Art of War are what we've just been talking about. Um, There are so, so many parallels. Choose your battles. Know when and how to fight and when not to. Timing is everything. Know yourself. Know your strengths and weaknesses. Know the enemy. Right? Better to win without fighting if you can. On and on and on and on. All of the lessons, not, not all, but the vast majority of lessons that you can learn from Sun Tzu apply directly to MedTech patent litigation, especially in bet the company litigation where the company's back is against the wall. So that's, that's how I would wrap things up.
0: Well, I can't think of a better place to, to leave it with. Uh, let me say that again. Well, I can't think of a better way to end the episode. David, you've been extremely generous with your time. I think this is going to help a lot of people. Thanks so much for being on Unmet Need.
1: it's, It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank
0: you very much.